Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Charles Massey in conversation with Ashley Hay, recorded live at the 2018 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello everyone, thank you for being here this afternoon. I was saying to Charlie last year I thought his ears must have been constantly tingling because as I read The Call of the Reed Warbler, I found myself insisting to everyone that I met that they needed to read it too. Um, it is an extraordinary book about recovery and regeneration. Uh, I would like all of you to read it. I would like all Australians to read it. I would particularly like a fair whack of Australians politicians to read it and fairly urgently. Um, the book's been described as radical, beautiful and hugely consequential and its subtitle is A New Agriculture, A New Earth and that gives you this kind of shimmer of potential, I think. It's this, it's this vast and sort of mighty survey of different ways of living and working on the land. It's a book about regenerative agriculture and it's important to know before we start talking that regenerative agriculture is, as Charlie writes, more than just sustaining something. It is an active building or regeneration of existing systems towards full health. It also implies an open-ended process of ongoing improvement and positive transformation. Imagine approaching the world like that. So I would like to start, Charlie, with a pretty obvious sort of question, which is if you could give us a, a kind of potted rural biography of yourself, where you came from, what sort of farming you expected to be doing and where you have found yourself working. Thanks, Ashley. <clears throat> Intro like that, I'll put you on a commission. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, look, grew up on a farm, um, Southern Monero, which is tough, temperate grassland country. As I didn't, said in the last tent, we've come up here for a break. It was minus 10 or 11 the other day. Huh? Um, so I grew up there as a child, only child, spent a lot of time in the bush and became really keen on nature. I uh, went to uni, therefore, to do zoology, but uh, my father had a heart attack and I ended up taking over the farm at 22. Growing up on a farm doesn't mean you know how to manage it. Um, so I sought the best advice, um, best farmers, Department of Ag, CSRO, etc. And so I was well and truly inducted into the industrial model and so I ploughed country, some country, um, overgrazed some of it, so I damaged perennial grasslands. Um, and in the 80s drought came along, I decided in my uh, arrogance to fight it, imagine that, and um, it went on for five years. And we ended up with a big debt and um, built of the landscape and, and uh, you know, I still grieve over that today. Um, in the process of that, developing a sort of innovative um, uh, merino breeding approach for beautiful fibre we put into Italy and places, um, but it really took on a very powerful scientific establishment. And so travelling widely in Australia, a um, couple of hundred clients, um, a number of them were the early adopter types and they were also into this new regenerative farming. And I was already that way inclined. Mm -hmm. and. Um, I just saw how transformative it was in landscape, in family, in human health. Um, there was an excitement. It was, mm. you know, positive, mm. and and quite profound what it was, what was happening to the landscape. And so that took me back to university 
um, my late fifties at, at ANU, where I'd already done the, uh, uh, in the early seventies. It was the first course in Australia on, on truly holistic thinking, called human ecology. There's only two other courses in the world, so I guess I was already wired as a holistic thinker, and uh, so I, I had the privilege of travelling across Australia, uh, interviewing eighty of the leading regenerative farmers, and. Um, asking the question why they'd done this transformative shift mm -hmm. and what was going on. So that's really what led to that and trying to illustrate a journey of ecological literacy because I'd realised I couldn't read a landscape, how it functioned, and I mm. think the best thing I could do, tell lots of good stories to illustrate a sort of simple model on how landscapes work and um, and then tying it into human health and big issues towards the end and, and including which I think we'll get onto. Um, solutions to the Anthropocene that we we now now know, and where I'm based still at uh, ANU as a visiting fellow, just down the corridor are some of Australia's leaders in climate and the other Earth system. It's not just climate; people think it's only climate. There's nine key self-organising systems of our Earth, of which humanity, particularly post 1950s, is seriously degraded. Some of them very dangerously. Mm. Um, regenerative agriculture, uh, industrial agriculture, is a key player in destabilising all of those systems by the ozone layer. The flip side to that, if that's the case, a regenerative agriculture is probably one of our best ways to address this Anthropocene crisis. Mm. And, and to me that's incredibly exciting and linked to that is a transformation in human health because at the moment by killing our soils with poisons and, and all the rest of it, um, the industrial food is laced with incredibly damaging, um, particularly glyphosate or Roundup. And maybe we'll touch on that later. But um, so it's, it's multiple solutions, which to me is a lot of hope. A few people have said to me, the the news is so negative about climate and the Anthropocene. Well, um, she's not all over. This, we've got some great solutions. There are, I think that is, um, I, I write a lot of my nonfiction um, has been in the area of climate science in the last 10 years particularly. And I think the reason that I loved your book so much and found myself talking about it to so many different people from different areas was that I came out of it feeling optimistic and hopeful, which really <laughs> is rare these days. It felt extraordinary to to understand uh, not just what it was possible to do in the context of, of the land, but how that did feed out into all these other systems. And you mentioned in there the idea of ecological literacy, which is something that I want to come back to while we're talking. Can I just jump in with one yeah. story? Yeah. Just to illustrate that thought process um, and about hope, you know, I've got three daughters and a couple of grandchildren. And... Um, uh, when my grandson was about seven, we, uh, my son-in-law Andrew and, and I took Hamish in to watch him play soccer one Saturday morning, about 40k drive in to Cooma, and we drove past the farmer broom spraying this paddock, uh, killing all the vegetation, and, and Hamish, <coughs> all of seven-year-old, said, Grandpa, why do we have to kill things to grow things? And um, that really um, stood me up. You know, it's a profound mm. question. Mm. And often the profound questions come from the people who are best placed to formulate them, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they haven't been enculturated or entrenched right. paradigms and stuff. Yeah, That's right. I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the farmers uh, that you talk to in this book, the people who've changed their thinking. And for a lot of them, um, there was 
a moment of disaster that they mm. ran up against, in, in, whether it was uh, climatic, whether it was drought, whether it was, you know, a collapse of whatever it was that they were trying to farm. You know, there was this moment of da- disaster. But you also quote Thomas Berry's idea of the moment of grace when new thinking is possible. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that very potent combination, the intersection of disaster on the one hand and a really a real sense of potential for recalibration and, and revolution on the other because that felt to me like one of the really exciting parts of all that this book is talking about. No, you're quite right. Um, so the 80 leading innovative farmers that I interviewed, um, in 60% of the cases, the reason for their transformative shift from a deeply entrenched industrial mechanical mind over to this totally open-ended regenerative framework was they'd suffered some sort of major life shock. Um, one guy um, totally burned out in a bushfire, lost everything, had to start cropping with not a cent in the bank. Um, he was burned in the fire as well. Big droughts, marriage breakups, um, uh, quite a few were poisoned with chemical through accidents. And Somehow, and this correlated when I did the research, there's just one other example in the, in the States in transformative um, learning process. It took a major life shock to crack open the carapace of their mind, if you like, that rigid structure that paradigms and worldviews can lock us into. And I think what Barry's uh, alluding to is that when that opening and the light comes in, if mm. you like, it, it mm. has a completely cascading, transforming you sort of rewire your um, your cognitive view of the world. It's like, uh, and I've often heard the um, the word almost being born again. You know? mm. um, and so one example in the book is um, a guy called Colin Sice who decided with no money, he was a guy that was burnt in a bushfire, with no money to go out and crop. What the hell? He, he, he had beautiful native grasslands, what are called the carbon-4 grasses, which are the... Um, they go dormant in the winter and then wake up in the in the summer. The summer active. They're very uh, a lot of our major perennials are that way. And so he said, "Well, why don't I drill into them when they're going to sleep in the autumn when we normally so put in my grazing cereals and canolas, and then we'll harvest just as they're waking up." And and to use the analogy I've got with um, a sort of ecological literacy model I've got. He's basically was keeping more green grass uh, with his solar panels, punching in more sugars mm. for longer of the year. And look, I'll, I'll digress. Um, so Colin, it's, it's related to this guy. He was burned in a bushfire, lost everything, and he had a wonderful kelpie stud, black and tan kelpies, beautiful dogs. And all he could do as the fire rushed over the hill was open the kennels and let him go. And um, his, his old sire was a big-headed old beautiful dog who'd never been off the farm. Anyway, Colin got burnt and they carted him into the local hospital 20 k's away. And the sister came in after about three days and said, Colin, when they brought you in, we cut your clothes off and threw them at the laundry door. There's this old black and tan dog been lying on it for two days. Anyway, that's, um, that's sort of the connection with the land and, and animals that these guys can have. I think there's an enormous amount to talk about in terms of connections and cooperations. Again, because I don't come from a scientific background, I think perhaps I read a lot of um, books like this 
not just at the level of their information but also at the level of their metaphor because, you know, I work mainly in fiction now and that's sort of more my space. And there were so many spectacular metaphors in this book Mm. for how people nowhere near the land could actually think about... um, well, think about these sort of problems of place and these problems of being and these very existential kinds of questions. That dog is, is I think, you know, the perfect sort of example of that. I want to come back to the beginning of your, uh, of your sort of adult life, I guess, and as you mentioned, you went to ANU as an undergraduate in zoology um, and then you went back to do the PhD. And there's a beautiful quote in a um, in an essay by David Maloof when he's talking about how books and other creative projects come into being and he's got this lovely line about the university the universe beginning to attend what you're interested in and I had this um, I had this sense of you with a sort of particularly receptive mind and the idea that maybe this book had been assembling or accumulating itself for years through all these people that you met through all these conversations that you had, was there a kind of moment of epiphany where you realised that it wasn't just that these were a very interesting sort of suite of radical agriculturalists, but there was a greater story here, a greater kind of conversation? Yeah, there was. Um, So my own journey of mistakes, but then a lot of wide reading, um, Mm. being a holistic thinker, I guess you read more eclectically. Going back to university after nearly 40 years, I had a lot of catch-up to do on, uh, on the developments in modern ecology, what are called complex systems. You know, we'd had the computer and age come in and systems thinking and, and a lot of stuff in physics, uh, chaos theory and stuff. And I'd, Just a bit of light reading. To just get a bit across. of light reading. But out of that has come a really deep understanding in ecology and elsewhere of what are called complex adaptive systems, whether it's the earth or your landscape or whatever. There's all these multi-factors if they're disturbed, but they're allowed to equilibrate back to a state of health or resilience. Um, and they're pretty well described about 12 key characteristics of this. And uh, I, I taught a whole semester on it um, to master's students once, so it's, it's a deep mm. issue. I guess the one that hit me in the eye was that if, um, say, a disturbed landscape, if, if you're able to allow it to regenerate by... Uh, injecting a bit of energy or whatever, that system will um, self-organise itself back, maybe not to where it was, but at least to a, a greater state of health and resilience. And that I found that the most exciting. Mm. And it also explained what the regenerative farmers were doing, whether it was agroforestry or grazing or the new cropping. They were actually... and, and I kept hearing from some of these guys, they said, look, my job is to get out of the way of Mother Nature. And I, and I realised after a couple of years, they're actually, even though they didn't understand it, they're actually saying my job is to let nature self-organise, mm. get out of the way, kick in maybe a few things. And so that really, um, uh, I think that's quite profound and I guess that's really what underlaid my excitement in trying to put part of that story together. Because so much of our thinking is framed around ideas of husbandry now isn't it whether in an agricultural context but often in a conservation context as well of we are asking the question of of what we can do of of how we can you know we can translocate species we can you know what we can try to do to sort something out there's a there's a profound simplicity in in the idea of saying well if we just go Hmm. then something will happen and we can see what that is that's right i guess um looking at the broad view 
um, and I, I did touch on it in a chapter, that if you think back to an indigenous um, world, which I write about and I'm working with elders and, and, and you know, in kindergarten learning from them, they always, it's called, you could call it an organic mind. They saw themselves as an indivisible part of Mother Earth, not separate, just a, a small cog in the whole wheel, to use a bad mechanistic example. But, and then we went through that extraordinary phase, if you like, the Renaissance, scientific revolution, uh, capitalist revolution, industrial revolution, to the, the current ludicrousy of economic rationalism, you know, growth for the sake of growth and endless destruction. You could call that a shift from the organic to the mechanical mind, where we see ourselves as separate. And in farming and mining or whatever, the earth is now just a substrate to extract mm. profits. It's simplifying. Um, and I realised a lot of these advanced thinkers um, were combining the best of, of science, um, but also that organic worldview where they saw themselves as part of nature and of for want of a better word, I'm calling it an emergent mind, which is part of that self-organisation mm. uh, complex system. Um, so, yeah, it's a totally different way of thinking. And, and the more I reflected on on these bigger picture stories, um, you know, we, we uh, evolved in for a million years or so as a succession of hominid subspecies in the African savannas. So we co-evolved in this landscape. I'm picking up on your earlier thought. Uh, so we're hardwired to detect in our bodies um, both the basic minerals and nutrients coming in with the hunter-gathering food and, and, uh, and the hunters. Um, and a lot of people don't realise in a, in a shrub landscape, which we have in most continents and, and where it was occurring in savannas, there's tens of thousands of what are called the secondary phytonutrients in that landscape and we're, we're wired for them too. And, and so we still are, we carry this ancient evolutionary process mm. in, our, in our bodies and then you start to think about what we're doing to our food and denying all those sort of things. I, where I'm leading to is, it's only reading the other day, that just by, if we go out into a natural environment, we're actually breathing in RNA from a fungus and other things, which is getting into our microbiome and, and so we are genetically interacting with our environment even though we're not aware of it. Mm. Um, that's how indivisible we still are from, uh, from this co-evolved landscape we came from and to me that's opened up a whole new way of thinking. Absolutely. Because we're starting to think, you know, there have been extraordinary books about how, um, uh, how different organisms communi communicate, for want of a better word. So there's been a lot of work about the trees and how the trees, mm. you know, over very long time frames are essentially having conversations and, you know, and, and adapting and offering each other different supports and different things that they require. If you, which is exciting enough to read about, but if you then make us part of that conversation, that's quite phenomenal. If you start to look at those sorts of exchanges... That seems incredibly exciting. It is. I mean, we know we know that um, you know chemical transmission in animals are called pheromones, but plants do it. And so, for example, if you're a thorn bush in Africa and an elephant starts to graze it, um, those pheromones will go right across that thorn patch, and they'll start pumping up defensive chemicals, mm. like make them the grazing bitter. Same with the root fungus in the soil. They, they uh, the scientists call it the um, the uh, intercommunication highway, uh, you know, in the electronic sense, that um, if there's a plant disease starting at one corner of the, of the paddock or the field, the, the, a signal will be transmitted across 
maybe um, you know many hundreds of meters, mm. start putting out defensive chemicals. We, we're only just starting to learn the extraordinary um, complexity of nature, and here we are trying to put in monoculture crops and ploughing and simplifying the whole thing down. I'm wondering why it's falling to pieces. Hmm. I think it's an interesting question in Australia as well because we are such, uh, you know, the 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 um, mechanical mind, as you call it, that sort of product of the Enlightenment and, mm. and coming into the Industrial Revolution, it arrives quite a short time ago. It arrives with an absolutely clear sense that it knows what it's doing mm. in terms of growing things here and in terms of what needs to be done, and it does it. But it's doing it in a landscape which is utterly unique in the world is this extraordinary Gondwanan arc of complexity and of just completely different um, facets and elements than any other landscape it would have encountered. And I suppose it makes Australia, <laughs> this is a, you know, this sounds like a kind of callous thing to say, but it makes it an incredibly interesting case study because, because that sort of knowledge intersects relatively recently and impacts on a completely different environment does that mean if it has been you know where are we now 200 and almost 30 odd years how does that work in terms of trying to reverse it in terms of trying yeah. to flip what's there uh, really good question thank you <laughs> <laughs> i'd like um, i'd like a solution before we go today Thanks, yeah no Charlie. no it's, a, it's a great question um <laughs> so if you think about where that mechanical mind came right in the midst of that early scientific revolution, industrial revolution in, in the UK. Um, you're talking about a continent that was very freshly post-glacial, so chock full of nutrients, humid soils, humid atmosphere. And with that mind, and particularly in those that at that time, the sort of arrogance of that colonial attitude towards both land and indigenous mm, people. Mm. So that comes to this continent where some of our soils are 3.8 billion years old, uh, highly leached, things like phosphorus, in minute quantities. Um, lying hidden underneath this ancient landscape is a whole layer of salt. Um, unlike most continents, we don't have aerosols coming in off ocean currents or mm -hmm. other nutrients coming from other continents. No big rivers in the centre, no Mississippis, any you know, that sort of stuff. And suddenly this abrasive, interfering technology comes out of Europe and the approach to the land, we wonder why the systems collapse. And, um, both in my teaching but in the book, I, I illustrate um, a story where the first settlers across uh, Bass Strait, it took them only 15 years to totally collapse a complex grassland in Western Victoria. It went from incredible diversity. The early explorers talk about the, uh, riding horses and it was like um, the horses were tripping over half bales of hay. It was that soft and spongy from you know thousands of years ago. Took 15 years to go to deep gullies, salt and trees falling in. Um, the New England dieback, um, well, it's salting, for example, in Western Australia, about 30, 40 years once you cleared the trees and, and stopped pumping the water, mm. and the salt came up. And New England dieback, um, it took 130 years by the time they pulled all the rungs out of the system and it suddenly went whack. So the scales and times vary, but mm. uh, eventually if you simplify them and treat them with arrogance or mechanics, you know, we're smart in hindsight, aren't we? But, um, yeah, this is a totally unique continent and it is, we need to now um, approach it in a very holistic, sensitive rather than a, an arrogant mechanical industrial approach is the answer. Mm. 
You've got a gorgeous line towards the end of the book um, where you it's, it comes into your um, admission of being a holistic thinker, but you talk about looking up at your bookshelves and seeing old friends, a global brains trust across time, landscape, continent and distance. And I'd like to talk a little bit about the importance of having these sort of longer-lasting conversations of, of thinking and, and researching in a way that doesn't just go you know, through the last five years of papers about something, but actually has a means of looking further back, looking at what, you know, people were thinking in different environmental and ecological areas several decades ago. In Australia, we have access to this extraordinary wealth of Indigenous land management, which is surely, you know, one of the most exciting resources that we have. It feels like there is something very important in that exchange of rather than looking at these micro problems now, being able to sort of blow it back into the macro and and look at a longer conversation. Is that part of how the ideas of regenerative agriculture have kind of come into being by tapping into conversations that have been going on for a longer time? I, I think some of them have. I mean, I, I guess everyone in this room will think in a certain way and you can bet it's been teachers or books or whatever that's influenced the way we, we think. Um, I remember stumbling over Stralo's records of Aboriginal song cycle mm. poetry and I was just blown away at the ecological beauty and wisdom mm. of it and the romantic poets and, and you can read Ralph Waldo Emerson and and um, there's a whole tradition and, and in the agrarian world there's, you know, obviously Aldo Leopold and Wendell Berry, uh, many of the good thinkers have come out of the States from the 30s on in, in, uh, in this area. Um, and when, and uh, Thomas Berry, that wonderful mm. Jesuit thinker, who just thought truly holistically. So I guess all of that, as I think I say, um, well, I looked up on the bookshelf and there's this whole... Brains Trust, which mm. is, I mean, it's no different to any of us in this room. It's, it just happened to gel with what I was then learning about self-organisation and um, our interconnecting and our, the way we've co-evolved and still are. Yeah. How do farmers who aren't on a regenerative um, path, how do they respond to the idea of self-organising systems? Uh, well, they don't. Um, <laughs> And, you know, that's, I'm not mocking them. I've mm. been there. Um, it's just all about how deep our paradigms and worldviews are. I, I guess it's interesting um, how the ideas are spreading. As the pressures are now increasingly coming on with droughts and, and um, it, it is more of that mind-cracking occurring. Mm. Um, I've lost the track of that question. Uh, oh, how's, it, how's change occurring? Um, and just the sort of response from people... I suppose I'm asking whether there's a there's a there's a growing receptivity to it, or whether it is still something where there's a very big. We're very good at the moment of um, having very very large chasms between people, and I'm just wondering if if there's any sense of of bridges being built, or if it is still very much a yeah. kind of an us and them no, I've picked mentality. Up the picked up the thought. Thanks, Ashley. Um, one of the leading uh, change agents with Zimbabwean ecologist uh, Alan Savory, who's evolved the holistic grazing method, uh, which is now 30-odd million hectares worldwide. Uh, we do it at home and it's quite transformative. He, he, he told me two things because I've stayed with him and corresponded with him. He's, he talks about the 100-mile barrier that it's very hard for a farmer in a district to adopt the ideas of an innovator because essentially... It's a lot easier for someone to come from outside the district, pinch the ideas, go home and be seen as an innovator. 
in your own district, you've got to go down to the pub or the footy club and admit you've been a, a failure for 30 years because you're now shifting. It's, it's, that's his explanation. Right. Um, and um, it's, there are some now sophisticated social learning methods being developed, but it's really, uh, it seems to need that mind-cracking mm. pressure uh, for a range of reasons before change will occur. It's... Um, this, as one farmer said, this grey square foot of real estate between our ears, it, it's uh, very resistant to shifting. <laughs> Self-organisation. Um, the, the really miraculous part of the case studies that you present, um, and I say this in the context of reading this book in the last few weeks, is in terms of the people who are essentially now in a drought-proof place in Australia who have done extraordinary work at how they work with water and how they harness water and how they use mm. water. Now, this feels like an, a, an almost incendiary thing to say at the moment. I looked up the drought-declared areas for New South Wales last night and the DPI told me that 44.9% of the state was drought-affected, 32.3% of the state was in drought and 22.8% of the state was classified as being in intense drought. Now, when you add up those three numbers you get to 100% already. But they did tell me, and this next number had a little green spot next to it to make me feel better, that 0.1% of New South Wales was classified as recovering from drought, which was a tiny little bit just to the right of the snowy valleys sort of around Eucumbeen. How do you hear those numbers when you know there are people who would still be, you know, there is there is not a lot of water coming out of the sky or there's, there's that going on, but there would still be farmers who are having a different experience to the sort of story that we hear about drought with very dramatic pictures and, you know, incredible hardship that is being faced in certain places. It's, it's a sensitive area and, and, uh, and I'm going to be careful um, how I answer it because I've been there myself. Mm. I... I, I Decided I'd fight the 80s drought and um, pretty arrogant, isn't it? Fight nature. And we ended up with a big debt and um, trying to keep a merino stud and all the rest of it and, and, and knock the land around. Mm. Because who would have thought it kept going for five years? And um, mind you, uh, the biggest drought in Australia went from 25,000 years ago to 15,000 years. <laughs> so that's a, that's a real drought, 10,000 years drought. <laughs> uh, what we're seeing at the moment is a whole lot of governments. Um, legislative and policy issues that supports that fighting a drought approach, freight subsidies, fodder runs and all the rest of it. The holistic grazing flexibility that you mentioned, um, when it's well operated, um, can give you at least a three-month warning that your landscape's starting to slip, even though it doesn't seem too apparent. You just mm. know from your paddock records, the animal's behaviour, that the grass is losing its nutrition, something's going on. You start selling while your animals are uh, in prime condition and the markets mm -hmm. are still good. So that's what the really good operators that are handling this drought, they, they've totally changed their mind about um, the valuable resource of their genetics. That They just have to become a flexible, tradable, mm. in, including totally selling, going off and having a holiday or something and riding it out. So... But um, some people with good genetics and, and you think you're going all right and then the drought keeps going and going like central Queensland, um, you, you get caught. But I think the attitude and the government policies is still encouraging that hang-on approach. And um, But why I say I'm going gently, I mean, I can understand the predicament and uh, 
uh, and it's heartbreaking and, it, mm. and mental health issues are huge. You know, it's, it's part of the reason why the rate of male suicide is double in the bush to the city. Mm. It's one of the factors. Mm. Um, I want to talk a little about ecological literacy. I'm keeping my eye on the time and I'm going to let you guys have a go in a minute. But I'm particularly interested about how we address issues of ecological literacy for um, people like me who have a very urban lifestyle, who, um, you know, who might think about the provenance of my food, might try to, you know, grow a bit of it in my own backyard, but we are at a very great remove from the scale of agriculture that is, you know, required to feed all of us. So what's the sort of nexus that, um, that we can use to work on ecological literacy in that context? Yes, so what I tried to do in the book and, and, and refined in my teaching was reflecting on my own journey, why I'd made the mistakes. And I realised I could not read how my landscape functioned. I didn't know if it was well or ill. And there's whole lots of cycles in nature, but so I, I sort of adapted and evolved an ecological literacy model, which is fairly simple. It's you know, a, a range of cycles, the solar, the water, the soil, nutrient biodiversity and, and then that square foot of real estate, the human social, uh, all of which are deeply interconnected mm. and they incorporate all the other chemical cycles, etc. And so really uh, the guts of the book is describing what's going on and then illustrating it with farmers that have concentrated on that, bearing in mind, say, once you fix up your um, functioning um, grasslands mm. with deeper roots and more carbon sugars, that impacts all the other cycles, the water and all the rest of it. So... Um, that's really how I went about it and illustrated by lots of stories. But then you can extrapolate that uh, to the big picture. And um, I've just mentioned in the previous session, I've recently been privileged to work with a guy called Paul Hawken, who I regard as one of the great um, social and environmental change agents in the last 30 years, has written and done some great stuff. Now, he initiated a worldwide program to study what are the 100 best methods of pulling carbon down mm. Or preventing it going up uh, and he's called the book drawdown and um anyway talking to him i said well paul have you aggregated the top all, all the uh, regenerative ag methods mm. and just call it regenerative ag as far as pulling down carbon uh, we are about two four two point four times um, more capable of pulling down carbon than any other method uh, 200 gigatons a year and that, that's huge. So that's the big solution, and that flows into your water cycle, mm. uh, all of the major destabilised systems from biodiversity to water to land use to the to, to carbon dioxide turning the oceans acidic, the whole thing. It all flows. And so I guess what I'm saying is point one. The big picture here is that regenerative agriculture is probably provides the most readily available and understandable methods of addressing the big Anthropocene issues. And connected to that is the whole renewing human health mm. story, both mm. in making, you know, at the moment we're, we're destroying the soil's capacity um, to put nutrients into our food, a whole range. We don't realise once you plough and spray, you, you're basically knocking out 95, 98% of all the nutrients we're co-evolved to have for our immune system and our healthy functioning, let alone then putting on glyphosate, uh, Roundup, and the evidence that's coming is like a steam train coming at it. It's, we know it's into our gut. It's, in, it's interfering in the whole microbiome, the very front line of our immune system. It's in, interfering with the key amino acid pathway. We now know it's being water-soluble. It's, it's crossing the gut barrier, which is one of the major defence 
uh, barriers against toxins, etc. It's crossing into the blood brain through the blood brain barrier, uh, and it's crossing now uh, fetal and, and um, placental barriers. And, and we're wondering why, if you look at the curve and the takeoff of modern diseases from the mid 90s, uh, it goes like that. Uh, glyphosate with GM and the huge ramp up of its use is about a 98% correlation curve, both mental and physical diseases, all the big modern ones. I would say that's more than coincidence. I want to leave you with two things, if I could. One is it seems very appropriate to be talking about this um, in the week that holds Earth Overshoot Day, which if you don't know about it, that's the day each year where we've used our annual allocation of resources. So this year, 2018, we used up all our available resources by the 1st of August, which seems to me like it's left us with a little bit of a shortfall. Um, and the other thing I would like to end with is my favourite quote from this book, Charlie, which is a Kimberley pastoralist who very simply observed that the thinking that got us into this shit won't get us out of it. Right. Um, I would like to thank you all for coming along this afternoon and please join me in thanking Charles Massey. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2018. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.